the diet and lifestyle is really good at stopping the damage. Okay. If you want to rebuild or rehabilitate, you're going to have to exercise. Uh, and uh, E-STEM uh, augments the exercise. So it's particularly good for people who've had um, a lot of asymmetry. So in my case, my left leg uh, was far smaller than my right leg. Uh, and so adding the E-STEM allowed me to get things uh, back to uh, symmetric strength. And then I continue to use E-STEM all of the time. And I, I'll talk a lot more about this in, in my revised book mm -hmm. because I have a lot of scar in my spinal cord. So the output from my brain to my legs will never be the same um, because of that, uh, those scars. So I will always exercise and augment uh, on the left side of my legs uh, to keep that symmetry intact. Hi everyone, in today's podcast, I am going to be interviewing Dr. Terry Walls. And Dr. Terry Walls is an incredible medical practitioner that has overcome the odds around multiple sclerosis. And her story is really, really amazing uh, for you to hear and for you to share with others. And as you know, when we do the Eat Realty Hill podcast, we want you to share it with others if you feel inspired by it, if you know that it has information in there that can help others. The key to healing this world is to consistently share stories with others that have truth behind them, that have inspiration and motivation behind them, and that have hope behind them. So I really hope that you take the time to forward this podcast to someone else. It's really simple. You just subscribe to our podcast, press the little up arrow, email or text it to somebody and just tell them, hey, you know what? I love you. I was thinking about you. I think you would love this podcast and then leave it in their hands. That's all you have to do. Now back to Dr. Terry Walls. In this podcast, we cover some incredible topics. I first learned about Dr. Terry Walls when I saw her TED Talk, which is amazing. Everybody needs to see that. And then, of course, we dive into what it's like to be a doctor, to defy the odds, to turn to plant-based food as medicine, to come up with a protocol that is applicable to vegans, applicable to vegetarians, and also applicable to the modern day paleo, all in the name of reversing autoimmune disorders, particularly multiple sclerosis. So listen to this podcast right till the very end, because you're going to want to hear what she has to say about her dream for the future of medical schools as well. Now, let me tell you in detail who Dr. Terry Walls is. I mean, her bio is so incredible. Um, so I'm going to take the time to read it to you. So I don't miss a single thing because she's such an inspiration. So Dr. Terry Walls is an Institute for Functional Medicine certified practitioner. Now, just so you know, when doctors go to med school, they don't study functional medicine. They have to study that after they graduate. And so she's a functional medicine certified practitioner. She is also a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Iowa, where she actually conducts clinical trials. And this is what's so special about Dr. Terry Walls, is that 
she's just not seeing patients every day and then billing out at the end of the day and then moving on to the next patient the next day. She's actually doing research and conducting clinical trials, which is incredible. So in 2018, she was awarded the Institute for Functional Medicine's Linus Pauling Award. And if any of you haven't heard of Linus Pauling, please check him out. He's this amazing biochemist and scientist who understood the importance of orthomolecular nutrition and medicine, functional medicine, internal medicine, and he really knew how nutrition affected our health. So he is a Nobel Prize winner as well, so you definitely want to learn as much as you can about Linus Pauling if you haven't been exposed to him in high school or university. So she's also a patient who recovered from secondary progressive multiple sclerosis and she was in a tilt wheelchair for years for four years in fact and dr terry walls was able to actually change her diet she ate a ton of vegetables she ate lots of fruits and she was able to overcome her multiple sclerosis get out of her reclining tilt wheelchair and she now rides her bike to work every single day or as much as she can, but she's able to do that. And she's gonna tell you the story there. She has incredible books, The Walls Protocol, How I Beat Progressive MS Using Paleo Principles in Functional Medicine, and The Walls Protocol, which is a radical new way to treat all chronic autoimmune conditions. And then she also has The Walls Protocol, Cooking for Life. So that is also meant for all autoimmune conditions, including multiple sclerosis. So let's dive into this podcast so you can hear all about her. But before we begin, I do need to let you know about our incredible program that we have coming out, which we've already launched. It is called Richer at Work. And this is meant for corporations of 50 or more employees that want to turn their employees' health around. 60% of North Americans are battling obesity and at least one, if not more, chronic degenerative diseases. This is an epidemic. 75% of North Americans are actually obese. And so that needs to be turned around because obesity and chronic diseases uh, are correlated. And that needs to be understood because we need to tackle both simultaneously if we are going to stand a chance of people reclaiming their health, reclaiming their mental health status, and being able to be contributing mindful, giving, productive members of our society. And when I say productive, that means having the energy after a day of work to be able to go be of service, either serving for a nonprofit or for your children or for your partner or for your community. So if we don't have enough energy to even make it through the day, we definitely don't have enough energy to be able to be creative about the environmental issues that we have going on. So we can't get out there and find solutions, let alone lift a finger to actually do anything different. So we started Richer at Work to be able to help employees get back their productivity, not just in the workplace, but in their lives. So go to our website, check out the link. If you know of a company, a key decision maker, an HR person, a, um, a CEO of a company that wants to bring us in, we are gonna handhold the company and its employees through our Eat Real to Heal program. And that includes 
weekly group coaching. It includes our online course, a copy of our book, a full workshop where we actually end with a Eat Real to Heal meal so you can experience what real plant-based, unrefined whole food tastes like and it's delicious, I promise you. So we provide all of that to the employees and then of course we handhold them really for the life of our organization, for the life of myself, for the life of our courses, they get that weekly group coaching and then they also get invited into our tribe where they can ask questions 24 seven and we have a team that responds so that we actually see these employees right through the reversal of their disease, which means getting off medications, being able to cancel a surgery, working with their entire whole health team, which we teach them how to make so that they have people advocating for them and their health where drugs and surgery will not be the first course of action. Instead, it'll be activating their own body, their innate healing capabilities of their own body to actually tackle the chronic disease and mental health illness that they are suffering with. And then employees, or sorry, CEOs and companies get to experience the benefits of having a super happy, healthy, and productive workforce. So check out that program and definitely sign up and share this information with others. So without further ado, it is a deep honor to be able to have interviewed Dr. Terry Walls. And so let's welcome her to the show and begin. So welcome Dr. Terry Walls to our Eat Real to Hell podcast. It is a pleasure to have you on our show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Dr. Terry Walls, um, can I call you Terry? Oh, please. Okay, wonderful. So one of the reasons why I've wanted to have you on the show for so long is because when I first came out of my training in California, where I studied the Gerson therapy, um, I was actually, you know, really thinking there's no way that this can be true, that chronic diseases, diagnosed diseases can be reversed using anything other than prescribed medications and surgeries. And really that's the only way to do it. And when I first learned that you could use food to heal, um, I was really trying to disprove everything I just learned what, about the Gerson therapy. So I started to look around and of course I stumbled across your TED talk that you gave, is that about 10 years ago now? Uh, well, almost, it was 2011. 2011. And there was something quite profound in that TED Talk um, that really spoke to me because I was also doing my pre-med science courses um, and I was on the path to go to med school. So as I had been in the health world, in the nutrition world, and then took my pre-med courses, the biochemistry textbooks and the chemistry and the biology textbooks actually just said, food is medicine at the end of the day. It's really what it talks about, that we need nutrients in our body to keep our bodies healthy. And the part of your TED Talk that I loved most is when you were laying in the anti-gravity chair, you had you know, been trying to treat your MS for a number of years, and you started to go back to those biochem principles that you had learned about probably when you took your pre-med courses. Can you tell us a little bit about what that experience was like of being a medical doctor having practiced for years, being diagnosed, um, and then sure. arriving at that place? Well, um, you know, at the time of my diagnosis, um, you know, I'm a conventional internal medicine doc in um, academic medicine. And so I absolutely believe in the latest science in the New England Journal of Medicine. Yeah. And so I know what I want to do is treat myself with the best technology, the newest drugs at the best center doing clinical research. 
which was the Cleveland Clinic, saw their best people, took the newest drugs, and went steadily downhill. Um, my Cleveland Clinic doctors mentioned uh, the work of Ashton Embry and Lauren Cordain, who were advocating for a paleo diet. And so I read their scientific papers, slogged through them, thought, okay, well, there's a scientific rationale here. Uh, and um, so I took a, a big breath and went back to eating meat because I'd been a vegetarian for 20 years. Um, and so I gave up uh, all grain, all legumes, all dairy, uh, and uh, reintroduced meat. That took me several months and uh, continued to decline. I, I had slowed the speed of my decline, and so I figured that was like a phenomenal triumph because I'd been going down very, very rapidly. And so the fact I just was now just going down slowly, uh, I considered that to be a phenomenal success because I, I now had secondary progressive MS mm -hmm. and I had completely accepted that there was no return of functions once lost. But once I, I hit the tilt recline wheelchair, I'm like, okay, I'm clearly on track to become bedridden. I, and I was worried I might be on track to become uh, demented. And I'd also, uh, since 1980, so I'd already had about 20 years of steadily worsening trigeminal neuralgia, the electrical face pains uh, that like uh, jolts of electricity that come on more randomly. Uh, they were coming more frequent, more severe, and getting progressively more difficult to turn off. So my biggest fear was that that would turn on and be permanently on. So with that background, I thought, okay, I got to do everything I can to slow my decline. So the first thing I do is look for animal model studies uh, for drug studies. And fortunately, uh, in the next year, it occurs to me like, well, this is crazy because I can't access these drugs. Those drugs are probably another five to 10 years in the pipeline. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, I, I, I'm taking the new biologic drugs and they aren't doing anything to my trajectory. So like, okay. Um, then I had an aha, like, you know, I had to start reading things I could access. And so this was uh, neurodegeneration across many disease states, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, Huntington's, ALS. And all of that, I saw that mitochondria dysfunction was a big driver. So now I'm thinking like, okay, what could I do to help the Krebs cycle? What could I do to help my mitochondria? Yeah. How could I get the electron transport uh, cycle to work better? What could I do about the cell membranes? And so this gets me uh, uh, reading, uh, again, animal model studies. So I'm looking at mouse and rat studies um, that are affecting those things. So I'm adding a variety of supplements. You know, after about six months, I think I'm wasting my money and the skeptic rears up her head and I stop all those supplements. And, and what supplements were you taking at that time? Because I remember... So there was one video that I came across of yours where you had mentioned you had been a vegetarian for almost 20 years or over 20 years. And you yeah. had looked at the fact that you had also never taken B12. Um, right. So you know, actually my, my Cleveland Clinic docs had told me to take B12. So I had been on B12. Okay. Um, now, not on the doses that I'm on now. So I'm on much higher doses, but I had been taking B12, um, uh, uh, 500 micrograms. Yeah, I, and I added um, more, uh, originally it was flax oil. Now I switched over to cod liver oil. Um, and I added creatine, carnitine, lipoic acid. 
uh, in CoQ. And did you see, and you saw some improvement or no improvement? No, not at all. I just, not at all. So after six months, I said, ah, this is worthless. And were so you I taking high dose or low dose? Or oh, what you know, I, can't, I, I, I can't remember the precise doses. Oh, okay. So I'm curious about that because I know a lot of people. Well, let would... me finish my story. Yeah, let me finish, okay, finish my your story. story. Finish on, your story. So, so I quit. And then, you know, 36 hours later, I just really couldn't function. I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't go to work. Uh, on the third day, my wife comes in and says, you know, honey, I think I ought to take these. So I take them, and the next morning I could go to work. So I thought, wow, now that's really interesting. So two weeks later, I did the same thing. I stopped them all, and I did okay for 24 hours on the 36th hour. I really couldn't function very well. It was a struggle to get up. And so, again, I, I missed work. Wait, I waited three days. I stirred everything up, and I thought, okay. So they're not recovering me. All they're doing is slowing down the decline. Clearly, they're doing a lot for the fatigue and my function, probably more than, at that point, I'm now on Celsept. Um, and so I am jazzed. I'm like, okay, I got to read more science. And so I am uh, really excited that I am figuring out stuff that my neurologist is not mentioning, my primary care doc is not mentioning, I, and I'm slowly piecing piecing this out, and so I'm you know I'm reading the internet. Uh, when I look at these articles, I go back. If, if there's no PubMed citations, I don't bother reading the article because I, I want everything to be based uh, in science. But over the years, I, I begin to slowly add a few more supplements. And and what I would tell your readers is that as as fond as I am of the paleo diet. The paleo diet did not fix me. This, this in increasingly intensive supplement program did not fix me. When I discovered functional medicine and I, and I tweaked my supplement program based on their course in neurodegeneration, that didn't fix me. But when I sat down and had this big aha, like, what if I take this long list of supplements I'm taking and go figure out where they are in the food supply and redesign? I'm now like, okay, I think the paleo diet evolutionary stand it makes a lot of sense, but who knows how we should really structure it. So I should structure it a little more precisely to match the nutrients that the science seems to be telling me that my brain and mitochondria need. So that took me about three more months of research. And what was really helpful there was the Linus Pauling Center for Micronutrients. Yeah. So that now I had this long list of foodstuffs to that I that I'm using. But as I recovered and I started using this in my clinic, you just can't give people a long list of here's the stuff to eat. You have to give them a framework that's easily teachable, easily to remember, and things you could implement here in rural Iowa uh, with small rural grocery stores. And that's how I created the framework that I teach by. And certainly there are, there are other frameworks that can work to design a nutrient-dense diet, uh, but you have to find a framework that, that you can teach and can work with the audience that you are most serving. Yeah, definitely. And it's... And that's for me, it was uh, veterans of basically it'll be on food stamps. Right. Know. You have to teach the concept that people can use in their everyday life 
that they could use as they go out hunting for food in their environment. Uh, and for me, uh, that was uh, small rural grocery stores uh, in Iowa with people who you know would have high school education. So, um, and people who are often living on food stamps. Yeah, and working two jobs if they, you know, are working. So not just one job, so they don't have tons of time to, you know, probably right. prepare food. Yeah. Or, or that they're farmers, which meant they were working all day long. Yeah, exactly. So when you made the change to the diet then um, to incorporate, you know, these additional nutrients via food itself, what happened then? Yeah, so uh, it's sort of interesting. So what I did was I uh, dropped the uh, meat down, ramped up the vegetables. So now it's a uh, moderate uh, to moderate low protein, lots of vegetables. Uh, and the, you know, I tell the public it's nine cups of vegetables. In my case, I just had this tremendous craving uh, for greens. Uh, and so it's probably much more like 12 to 15 cups of vegetables uh, and probably two palm-sized serenes of meat, fish, or poultry. Uh, and I, I organized it along greens, and then along the sulfur, which was the cabbage, onion, mushroom family. Uh, and I did that to boost detox enzymes and uh, intracellular glutathione, and then deeply colored uh, pigments, uh, green, blue, purple, black, especially, but uh, I was trying to get people in all colors. Uh, and then in my clinics, uh, in my own, and so that's my entry-level diet. And then I personalize it based on their clinical response and their diagnoses and what I'd see happening uh, uh, to their lipid values. So we, we had uh, uh, multiple progression levels. And I cover that in my book so that, yeah. uh, because you know, you, you take the average island and probably the average American uh, or Western uh, diet consumption, it's a lot of processed food. Uh, a lot of grain-based food, a lot of white flour and sugars. And so my, even my entry-level diet is just a phenomenally large change. Mm -hmm. so, so we have a basic diet to start with. And even, um, I'd say 80% of my folks uh, had a remarkable transformation on that basic level diet. And we didn't have to go any further. About 20%, we would have to uh, continue to move them along to a more intensive uh, intervention. And so what was like, the, what was this like for you as a, you know, Western medically trained doctor who had studied intensely, you had been running clinical trials already, you know, you're, you weren't the average GP, you know, that is. Well, so the, the, the research I was doing um, was uh, in another area. It was, uh, um, diagnostic error and, and missed test results. So I'd not done clinical trials before. Okay. I, I certainly was teaching residents to be very skeptical of complementary alternative medicine. Yeah. I thought that was a waste of time. I completely had completely believed in the low fat diet. And so, so I'd been a low fat vegetarian mm -hmm. uh, for a long time. I, and so I had a, uh, actually a very low HDL, uh, relatively high triglycerides, even though I was very, very low fat. Mm -hmm. um, and by the way, my lipid profile dramatically improves uh, as I implement the wall diet. The HDL goes up, triglycerides go down, total cholesterol goes down. Actually, the total cholesterol went up a little bit, but my HDL also went up uh, quite remarkably. 
And when you were a vegetarian for 20 years, were you predominantly like the 10 fiscals of fruits and vegetables or were you on a, the refined um, Western well, typical standard American like vegetarian diet? Well, you know, people would think I would have had a phenomenally a great diet. Lots of grains, yeah. lots of legumes, yeah. um, you know, vegetables. Um, but again, it was, it's very low fat. Uh, and so a lot of starch. Now, it, it turns out that I have a severe reaction to gluten. So now if I have any gluten, my face pain turns on mm. uh, in about 6 to 24 hours to um, really quite severe levels. You know, if, if my face pain turns on, I'll sort of model it for you. Um, I'll have a little twinge at first, close my eyes, uh, and there's a little proximal spasm. In the next hour or so, to get to the point where I'm grunting, I can't uh, suppress the grimace. In the next hour, then it gets to a much louder grunt, and I have difficulty standing. I have difficulty maintaining postural tone. And then the next hour, it's so intense that when the jolts come, I can't see. The world is white, uh, and I can't talk. Uh, I'm drooling uh, because if I talk or swallow, it triggers the face pain. Uh, light triggers the face pain, touch triggers the face, face pain, sounds trigger the face pain, a, a breeze across my skin triggers the face pain. So you can bet I'm very careful about what I eat. Yeah, definitely. And had, did you, have you, like, I'm sure you have, but, you know, have you come to any conclusions about the, um, the mechanisms of action that are happening with the gluten in the body that trigger? Oh, sure. So, um, again, it, it, it has to do with your genetic susceptibility. Uh, then it probably, the next, so you have to have the genes, probably DQ, DQ8. Yeah. Uh, and 95% of those who have gluten sensitivity have uh, those two genes, but not all. So there's clearly another pathway. Um, and then there's a microbiome alteration, uh, a leaky gut. Uh, the gluten gets into your bloodstream, unfortunately. Uh, and then you're sensitized. And now once you're sensitized, you, your immune cells will never forget. Exactly. Uh, and so, and you don't want to have gluten on your skin, on your tongue, uh, in your gut. It activates your innate immune system. Uh, and uh, all those cytokines uh, uh, go up. Uh, you can also, if you've activated your antibodies as well, uh, then depending on your other uh, genetic factors, environmental factors, those antibodies may also cross-attack uh, in your brain, uh, your myelin, your cerebellar structures. Uh, there are a lot of uh, anti-brain uh, IgG antibodies. Uh, and there's a high rate of uh, thyroid, uh, anti-thyroid antibodies. Uh, asthma is really common, psoriasis is common, uh, variants of inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, and so in my clinical practice, I counsel everyone with an autoimmune disease, take gluten and dairy uh, and eggs out of your diet, uh, you know, implement a more nutrient-dense diet. Uh, and we talk about how to do it as a vegetarian, a vegan, or a meat eater. Awesome. And, and then we um, see what we get from there. Uh, and for many, that's enough. It just leads to a dramatic change in their quality of life. 
For some, I have to uh, go further with either some more advanced testing or a more rigorous uh, um, uh, elimination diet, uh, just because they've been ill for so long Mm -hmm. that they've developed uh, antibodies against other food proteins as well. So then that's a more complicated situation to sort out. Yeah, and I see that with my clients as well, is that um, for a good majority of people, they just make those changes. Uh, You know, what I teach is very similar to, you know, the WALS protocol, Um, you know, everything from, you know, it's, you know, lower protein, higher nutrient dense foods, it tends to be quite low calorie as well. Um, And once they do that, then all of a sudden we see these remarkable changes, which, you know, for years they've been trying to even get some reprieve from their symptoms and they can't. So, but, you know, the, you know what I know, some people who are listening to this, it's going to be the first time that they're ever hearing that you can, you know, reverse or slow down the progression of the symptoms of MS. And yeah. do you ever say, like, what do you say to people about your MS? Like, have you reversed it? Have you, so, what's the language? So, so here's the language that I use is, <clears throat> excuse me. So here's my experience. 27 years of worsening trigeminal neuralgia despite seeing the best people in the country, seven years of silly worsening MS, despite seeing the best people in the country taking newer drugs, including the biologics. Four years in circuit-clined wheelchair. I uh, changed my diet in a very specific way, diet and lifestyle. With my neurologist blessing, I'm able to go off my drugs. And 12 months later, off drugs for six months, I'm able to do a 20-mile bike ride. And if I deviate from my diet and lifestyle, my trigeminal neuralgia turns on to horrific levels. So for me, very clearly, diet and lifestyle is the driver of health or disease. Uh, And then I have plenty of folks who say, okay, so progressive MS does not reverse. So your physician's at the Marshall Clinic of Wisconsin, the Cleveland Clinic of Ohio, the University of Iowa, are all incredibly incompetent. You never had MS. Yeah, I heard that oh. feedback. Okay. So then that we said, okay, and who knows, maybe that's possible. Then the next really important thing is to do a prospective single-arm clinical trial, testing my interventions and others with progressive MS, verified by their treating neurologist and our study neurologist. And then we treat them for three years and see what happens. Lo and behold, um, we see a dramatic reduction in the fatigue, a dramatic improvement in quality of life. And half of these folks have clinically meaningful improvement in gait. In a condition where you expect a 10 to 20% decline in gait every year. Exactly. So as a group, we, we held them stable. That would be unheard of. And when people are taking all these really potent drugs, they're trying to keep people stable and they have progressive MS. So just the fact that we kept the group stable, that's remarkable. And the fact that half the group had remarkable improvement, really uh, quite remarkable. Then we do another uh, randomized uh, weightless study uh, with relapsed remitting MS. Again, uh, MS diagnosis verified uh, by the treating neurologist according to the McDonald criteria. You get the study diet. This time we just did diet alone, or you had to wait two weeks and then get the study diet. And again, we could show in a prospective way, using blinded assessors, that 
motor function improved, mood improved, quality of life improved. Then we had another study where we compared, again, weightless control to the Walls diet and then to a ketogenic version of the Walls diet. Mm -hmm. uh, and because I, I wanted to, because there's, there's a lot of reasons to think that a ketogenic diet might be superior. So, you know, I, I'm open to new ideas. So we, we test the Walls diet against the ketogenic diet, against the weightless control. Uh, that paper is under review, so I can't really comment on it. Mm -hmm. But the fact I'm smiling should tell you something uh, positive about that. Uh, and now we have a, a large study funded by the National Multiple Sclerosis Society, where we'll have a observation period. Then we randomize, and we give them either the low-fat swank diet or the Walls diet, and then they come back again, and we measure uh, thinking, walking, uh, vision. Uh, we do a ocular coherence tomography, so a really detailed look at what's going on in the eyes and the optic nerves. Uh, and we measure quality of life, uh, uh, vision, walking, thinking. Uh, we have some actigraphs, so we measure how much movement that they have, which also tells us, by the way, the quality of their sleep. Yeah. Uh, and we've done a, a really detailed look at what they're eating uh, in terms of uh, diet, food frequency questionnaires, and a three-day weighed food record. We collected a bunch of blood, a bunch of poop, you know, it, it's it's going to be just like a phenomenal study. So our, our last visit will be in January. It's January 20th of 2020. Then we'll be analyzing the data. Uh, and depending on when the late-breaking abstracts get to be submitted, I, I'm hoping it's in late April uh, for the uh, International MS Research Meeting that will happen in Washington, D.C. in September because... I'd sure like to be there and presenting uh, on, our, on our results. Yeah, I'd like for you to be there as well. Um, I would like to be there to hear you presenting those results. Um, I have to tell you, when I was, I was at two physicians conferences last year, um, where, you know, it's plant-based nutrition conferences, uh, you know, it's all scientific research that's being presented. Um, it's, you know, medical doctors that are up there, scientists that are up there, researchers that are up there, and they're presenting. And it was amazing because being an uh, audience member, I'm sitting amongst a thousand physicians. And, you know, we get to talking and they're like, do you really believe this is true? And I'm like, what do you mean? Like that your peers are up there. They went to the same medical colleges and universities that you did. And it's good to question, like, right, oh, yeah. like dive deep into the science, read the studies that they're referencing, understand if it was designed well, if there's any bias in there, you know, to do that. But I was amazed because you know I said well like let's talk about what you know you're questioning and they would start to talk about it and I was like well you know and I remember one physician in fact I was like well do you remember being taught about the Krebs cycle because they had mentioned the Krebs cycle and you know these physicians he said he's like oh I don't remember that that was so long ago and you know, and this is one of the things that, you know, and because I'm thinking about my audience listening and I know from my clients that they're like, well, why don't my doctors know about this? You know, could you speak to that a little bit? Because sure. it's so, really you know, hard to understand. We study a lot of basic science, uh, physiology. Then we, we have uh, a little bit of uh, that's in our first year. Then we go on to uh, the physiology of disease. Then we go on to uh, drugs. And then suddenly we're treating patients. Uh, and we 
there's so much information, the stuff you aren't using all the time gets crowded out and falls away. I, uh, then on top of that, our understanding of the, of the chemistry and the biochemistry of life and the um, intricacy of, our, uh, of all the biochemical pathways gets more and more complicated uh, and it overwhelms us as physicians. You know, I, I, we have so much fact-based stuff I have to learn, uh, new drugs all the time. Uh, and, uh, and so it's very hard to keep up. It is very hard to keep up. Uh, they're working uh, with more patients every day, smaller uh, visit times are allowed, more documentation requirements, uh, greater and greater pressure. Uh, so for the practicing physician, I, I actually have a great deal of empathy for mm. their struggle uh, and their suffering. Me too. Uh, I've advocated uh, here at the university that uh, we teach our medical students uh, how to have a nutrient-dense diet, either as a vegetarian or a meat eater, according to one's spiritual beliefs, um, how to have a meditative practice or stress-reducing practice, and how to do the seven-minute workout, because they're not going to have much time. we got to teach them you know, how to get a high-intensity interval training, because they're young. They should be able to handle that so they could survive medical school and residency, because for them to use it in clinical practice they're only going to use what they've learned how to use in their in their daily life. Exactly. So it would greatly improve the probability that we would have physicians that know how to cook food, even though you're working long hours, that they know how to manage stress, even though they're working long hours, and they know how to maintain physical fitness, even though they're working long hours. And if they do that themselves, then it's very easy to talk about that in your practice. My, my young residents uh, used to love to have me, they, they, they couldn't wait to come say like, Joe, I can't wait for you to go talk to Jones. He's pretty cantankerous. I don't know how you're gonna get him to eat vegetables. And I go in, you know, and again, in five minutes, I'm able to get this guy fired up about, so, you know, either your vegetables or your liver, one or the other, because yeah. your body can't work if it doesn't have the building blocks. It, you have to use metaphors that the, the, your public will understand. So for some of my guys, I, I could talk about raising the champion steer for the fair. Uh, for other guys who talk about fixing the sports car, and you're not gonna pour sugar in the gas line uh, for the sports car. So you have to have metaphors that are relatable to your audience. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned the stress part, and I have to say that since I first heard your talk and then read everything that I could get my hands on, and you know, and I'm lucky I have access to all the scientific journals uh, through my university, and yeah. um, I've been following you like from that very first study that you did. I think it was mm -hmm. six. Was it six patients or six participants? Yeah, yeah. Right. The, the first the first report was the uh, first six that came through. Yeah, and my heart, positive. and it was so positive. But then I read the media feedback um, from your peers, you know, other medical doctors in the field and, you know, what you read on the internet. And I just knew, I saw what was happening because it's the same thing that happened to Dr. Max Gerson. You know, he a highly respected doctor. Uh, he got sick. 
he changed his diet. I mean, you and he have identical stories. He healed himself. Other people said, oh, what did you do? So he started, you know, doing research and then treating patients and they started to heal. And then that's when the quackery, like, you know, claims started coming in and saying, well, you never had this disease. Um, in the first place, they tried to like completely break down the study, which is great. I think it's great to critique every, anybody's study that anybody does. But I watched this happen and I was stressed just thinking about what you had done, what you had gone through and seeing a hundred years later, your story playing out exactly like Dr. Max Gerson's. So how did you handle that? Or did you just ignore all of that and keep charging through? Oh, it just, it just rolls off my back. Okay, good. You know, so I didn't need to worry about you at all. It, you didn't need to worry about it. You know, it, it, in many ways, you, in, in some ways, my life I prepared me for this. Um, you know, imagine uh, growing up in rural Iowa, realizing that I'm different from the other girls because I like girls, I don't like boys. I'm like, oh, dear God. And so I tried to be straight for a while and realized, well, that's not going to work. Uh, and wrestle with who I am. I, and finally, during residency, realized, okay, I, I just have to be who I am. Uh, but that, that meant I'd sort of learned that, okay, you have to be who you are. People may not uh, like you at first, but if you're comfortable with who you are, they'll get over it. Uh, and fortunately for me, the chair of medicine had seen my recovery. He had seen, said, this is so important. Get the case report written. And my response was like on myself, said yes. Wow. So I said, okay. So I got that done. Then he called me back and said, now I want you to do a safety and feasibility study. And I said, well, you know, I, I don't do clinical trials. He goes, well, you are now and I'll get you the mentors. This is so important. Uh, we need to do that. Uh, and uh, then as I was designing that, uh, he got the mentors and the mentors said, okay, since the IRB said you have to do, I could only do the first 10, although I had mine to do 20. Because this was such a radical intervention, I had to have all these safety reports. I said, that's fine, you'll, you'll have two publications, the first 10 and then the first 20. So we got two publications. Um, and then I went back to the Canadians who funded me originally. And they said, so they funded the next uh, two studies, small pilot studies. Uh, and then in the meantime, uh, the university uh, made a... Um, a uh, funding source, the Walls Research Fund, and the university started getting cold calls from uh, philanthropists who said that their lives had been transformed after discovering my work and that they wanted to uh, support my work. Uh, and so we had uh, some uh, large donors, uh, which again allowed me to fund these uh, smaller pilot studies, which then gave me uh, incredibly powerful preliminary data for those grants, that larger grant for the MS Society uh, that I'm now doing now. And, you know, when I write these grants to the uh, NIH, you know, when I started writing them 10 years ago, uh, you know, I should have kept those, those reviews, those remarks. They're just like, really? You know, we, we physicians, uh, scientists are so mean and nasty and crass to one another. They were calling me all sorts of vulgar vulgar things uh but i you know i just keep writing i just keep uh putting it forward uh and then i, I have the incredible opportunity that because i at the same time am talking to the public and putting out my instructions to the public i'm having impacts on millions of people and some of them actually have money 
and some of them call us up and say, yeah, I believe in walls. I want, I want, so what's she doing now? Send, send us a proposal. So uh, we have basic scientists now that whose work I'm uh, funding uh, is to help them, uh, help us understand how, what are the mechanisms behind uh, what, what the changes are that occur? Because I've got a freezer of blood. Uh, and so my basic scientists at the colleagues, you know, come up to and say, hey, Terry, I understand you got a freezer, like uh, you got plasma or cells or serum. And, and I said, give me a proposal yeah. and I'll think about letting you have some of my blood. Amazing. Amazing. And I just uh, read recently that you are, what phase of your uh, trials are you doing? If you can just explain that in like very layman's terms, for oh, sure. how that works when you are wanting to design a study, what does that look like? What does that look like yeah. to get it approved? But then also, you know, people well, think you just do a study and you get results and it doesn't work that way. You know, you know, it, it's a complicated process. The first thing you have to know is I only get to study what I have money to do. If I don't have any money, then I, you know, I can't do the study. I can think about it. I can design it. I can write it. I can pitch it now to people who I think might want to pay for it. And so that would be to like the National Multiple Sclerosis Society or some foundations in Canada I pitched to uh, the National Institutes for Health. And then either they say yes or no and give you feedback. And because the stuff I want to do is so innovative, most often, if you go to uh, the MS Society or the NIH, uh, they're not going to be ready, because usually those groups want to make small, incremental, little, little baby step by little baby step. Um, if I can work with a philanthropist who has a big, a big vision, then I can have a conversation about, uh, here's my big vision, and uh, what disease states, what symptoms are they most interested in. And we sort of collaboratively uh, design a study that addresses uh, an area that's of uh, personal interest to them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that gives me a little more flexibility. Uh, then I also have some donors who just say, man, I so believe in you. I'll, I'll, I, I want you to be able to design fully according to what uh, you think will have the highest impact. Uh, and you know, it, what's, the other thing that's interesting so the university was, was not quite so sure they liked my idea of telling the public what I'm doing at the same time that I'm doing it, because mm -hmm. um, people don't usually do that. But now that I've, I've been doing that for eight years uh, and have this huge following and have this big international impact, now the university has come to realize that there is a lot of insight and wisdom uh, to my approach, and that in fact they would like to have. I, I've I've chatted with a variety of departments about this more entrepreneurial uh, uh, approach that I have, and this uh, telling the public more about what you're doing and why, mm -hmm. uh, so you can generate public interest. Because you know that uh, philanthropic support that lets you get a little pilot data for your idea uh, is huge. Now, the other thing that I do that is unlike any other science that, that happens is that how science usually happens is you work it out molecule by molecule in the mouse. Then you see if you can work it out in people and only about, I'd say about 90% of the time, it doesn't work very well in people. Mm -hmm. um, what I'm doing is 
I get the spectacular result in one person, me. I get the spectacular result in my patients. Then I get the, spe I get the spectacular result in other MS patients. And so now I'm working with the basic scientists who are saying, like, this is like so cool. I've never been in the position of getting to work out the molecules in a model that we know works in people. Yeah. And then if you want to understand it further, you could, I guess, go back to the mouse model and really, Correct. really try it so, that way. Yeah. So then um, in order to do that, we have to create the mouse model of the Walls diet. Yeah. Exactly. And, and of course, the, some of the complexities there are, so we can, we can, and we're in the process of, of creating that mouse model, but does the mouse have the same genes that we have? Yeah. Do they have the same microbiome? No, of course not. Uh, and so even then, it's going to be, uh, it will be very interesting. It will be helpful, but still imprecise because biology and life is way more complicated so complicated because it's in the context of lifestyle as well and environment and you know what you're exposed to in iowa right you grow a lot of yes. corn a lot of glyphosate spray a like, lot of glyphosate yeah. yeah let's talk about glyphosate because we had dr zach bush are you familiar with dr zach bush's work um no no, let me just quickly tell you, because Please. I think you'd be very fascinated. Um, Dr. Zach Bush, you know, he started off in chemo research. He's a medical doctor. Then he moved into functional medicine, then internal medicine. And now he's basically teaching similar to you. Like at the end of the day, lots of fruits and vegetables. Um, he teaches predominantly plant-based diet to reverse chronic disease with his patients. But he's actually a soil regenerative specialist. And what he saw is that when his patients turn to food as medicine, 30% got better, 30% stayed the same, the disease stopped the progression of the disease, 30% got worse. And when he started to look at why they got worse, he saw that glyphosate was a huge factor. So once he put them all in a 100% organic diet, then all of a sudden he saw this massive improvement. So if yeah, you could yeah. speak to glyphosate and also speak to, is that an important factor with, you know, with, when we so, start eating 10 cups of vegetables a day, what does that mean for people? So glyphosate uh, changes the soil microbiome uh, and basically uh, starves the plants, which is why they die. Uh, the uh, animals that are eating uh, a lot of uh, uh, grain, uh, soybeans, uh, raising glyphosate, uh, they get a shift in their microbiome. Uh, and uh, those of us who are eating glyphosate sprayed foods, grains, uh, um, get a shift in our microbiome uh, with a huge negative consequence. Uh, so widely used um, herbicide, uh, I think it's the most widely used herbicide globally, uh, and it's uh, hugely disruptive, uh, big, big problems for us all. And I believe it's been uh, increasingly associated uh, or linked to a variety of uh, cancers. Uh, and, and I think it's uh, going to be linked to a variety of neurodegenerative diseases as well. In my clinics, um, I, again, I, I want to reiterate, I, I would, we would tell people to improve the quality of their food according to their financial means. Mm -hmm. And so most of my folks would start out with conventional, conventionally raised foods. Uh, many of our folks uh, who had severe financial constraints we're doing uh, gluten-free grains and legumes. But of course, what many people don't realize is that a lot of these grains and legumes are finished 
dried uh, with glyphosate. Yeah. So even if it wasn't a glyphosate ready crop, it's a glyphosate finished crop. Yeah. So they get great results, um, then we're good. If they don't get great results, uh, then we're talking about how to improve the quality and get more organic foods uh, into their diet. Uh, and uh, people would, over time, begin to figure out how to get more organic fruits and vegetables uh, and to get uh, exposures to uh, organic bulk grains uh, and legumes. Um, it certainly is a process. Um, and one of the things that uh, I, I certainly wonder about, and I, I've not yet done, but um, I would like to check the glyphosate in my water. Mm -hmm. See, um, you know, I have a, a filtration system uh, in my home, uh, doubly filtrated, uh, filtered. Uh, is that getting the glyphosate out? Uh, and, you know, I, I grow organic uh, garden, but I'm in Iowa. Uh, glyphosate's in our rain. So uh, it would be very interesting uh, to see what is my glyphosate residue. But I, I also take a near-infrared sauna every day. Mm -hmm. uh, well, probably five days out of seven, uh, and I have a variety of strategies to uh, greatly improve my ability to clear the glyphosate and whatever other toxins I'm encountering. And is that just in your house that you have that, the infrared sauna? Uh, yes. Okay, that's great. Um, is there a particular type that you would recommend? Because I know that you know people listen to these shows and they want to run out so, right away. And So the, the uh, sauna that I use is uh, Sauna Space. Okay. Uh, it's a near-infrared bulb. You can get a single bulb unit, okay. um, or you can get the five-bulb unit. Mm -hmm. And for, for people who are heat intolerant, um, then a single bulb unit, so you can keep the bulb far away okay. and bring it gradually closer as your, heat in, as your tolerance for heat improves. Okay. And, okay, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. There is... Um... There's one thing about going back to the mouse model that we were talking about um, that I think is fascinating is that, you know, well, when you want to study, do studies and you're using mice or whatever other animal, you have to induce the disease that you're studying. So how do they induce the disease in the mice, you know, to get a whole, you know, genetically, you know, similar group that all would have MS or the particular type of, because there's different types of MS, right. they're not. So so there's uh, a variety of induction methods, depending on are you wanting to study the inflammatory component more um, or is it more the degenerative component? So there's a copper stress uh, that is used, uh, the cuprazone uh, induced, that's more with neurodegeneration. The experimental autoimmune encephalitis uh, uses a, a different exposure. And I have to admit, I, I don't recall what all is used in the exposure for the experimental autoimmune encephalitis group. Yeah, and the only reason I ask that because I think it's interesting to think about, like if you want to induce MS in, you know, these mice, is it the same principles that perhaps oh, well, we as humans go through? And, and it's not. Oh, okay. Because we don't really understand what causes MS in people. Oh, okay. we, we say it's a complicated uh, polygene interaction with interacts in complex ways with your lifetime of diet, environmental exposures, infection exposures. And there are a number of infections that appear to be uh, associated. Uh, 
So we don't know. Mm-hmm. So these I, are these are MS-like illnesses, but they're not MS. Right. And I'm glad that you bring that up because a lot of my clients will come to me and I think they've actually spent more time trying to understand what caused their disease as opposed to just getting to it. And let's make the lifestyle changes to arrest the symptoms and, and to you do know, that. A lot of people uh, investigate all of that very vigorously because they don't want to go through the work of changing habits. Exactly. And I have a lot of people who, who want to spend lots and lots of money on investigations. I'm like, no, you know what? If you're going to work with me, and this is the rule in the VI, if you want to work with me, you have to commit 100% that you're going to do gluten-free, lots of veggies, either as a meat eater or not meat eater, we can work that out, Uh, and that we're going to begin a a meditative practice. It's you and your family, and if you're not ready to do that, that's fine. You can see the dietician, she'll work with you to improve your diet, but you don't get to work with me, you don't get to be part of our groups, because we have a long line. Yeah. Uh, people waiting to come see me and we're not gonna let you take up a chair if you're still thinking about it exactly yeah and I've said that's how it at the beginning I wasn't like that with my clients I'd be like you know I can teach you the science I can teach you everything I can help you problem solve around you know income and grocery shopping and cooking and all of that and now I'm just like hey this is how we do it it's 100 percent or nothing and but what I do ready yeah. And people come back. They'll come back in two, three years. They're like, I didn't yeah. get results in the 20 other thousand ways I tried. So let's just get to the work. And, you know, I hate to call it hitting rock bottom, but it almost is like when they arrive at that place where they're, it's like either financial rock bottom, health, chronic pain, fatigue, rock bottom, like they just don't know what to do. Then they come around. You know, and if you think about it, like uh, any other addiction, um, so some people are going to die with their tobacco addiction. Some will die with their gambling addiction. Some will die with their alcohol addiction, and some will be ready to come uh, address their addiction, realize they have to clean their environment. They'll have some relapses, mm-hmm. and uh, some will never get completely clean, uh, but many will. Uh, and we're asking them to deal with an addiction. We are. Uh, so explain that more because I know that there's some people that get irate when we compare um, a lifestyle and food addiction with yeah. alcohol addiction, but I say it's an addiction too. Yeah. Oh, no, no. The, the science is very, very clear. Uh, you know, after World War um, II, we created a industrial food supply to uh, feed our troops. And then that industrial food supply didn't want to go away. And so they did a very effective marketing uh, to the housewives of America who were uh, becoming liberated and working. So we made their lives easier by having this processed food, which was purchased by the tobacco industry that had a great deal of expertise in creating products that are addictive. Mm-hmm. And so our, our food has been designed to uh, stimulate the pleasure centers of the brain. A lot of dopamine uh, is released. And it has been designed very intentionally using our food scientists uh, to create food that drives overconsumption and creates withdrawal if you're not consuming it. And unfortunately also creates uh, insulin resistance, a lot of inflammatory cytokines, uh, a leaky gut, uh, increases the vulnerability for uh, autoimmune disease, increases the vulnerability for diabetes, obesity, uh, mental health issues. Uh, and because uh, uh, the 
way our, our government uh, is funded. Um, we have a very close relationship with large uh, corporate ent interests. It will be very difficult for our government to protect us from these uh, uh, corporate entities that make a lot of money by designing foods that drive overconsumption and addiction. Um, therefore, the people who will be the most successful are those who realize this is very much like an addiction. Okay. Uh, and if you're going to want to have a, a greater chance of success, you want to exclude all the foods. You're just making one decision. I'm going to ha not have this in my eating environment anymore. Because if it's in my eating environment, it will somehow find its way in my mouth. I will chew and swallow. And then I'll be back to over-consuming that food. Exactly. And that's so important for people to understand is, you know, parents say, well, how do I get my kids to eat this way? And I'm just like, well, you can't have anything competing in the house. If you have any processed refined food in the house, it'll always win over the fruits and vegetables. I mean, our brain is wired to keep everything so efficient. Yep. So if you can eat a bag of salty, oily, you know, potato chips, that's more efficient than eating, you know, five cups fulls of, you know, fruits and vegetables and you have to chew them, you have to digest them. Your brain is going to be like, just go for the chips, right? Yeah, Plus you, know, you get the, the dopamine hit. You get the dopamine hit, uh, those, uh, 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 yes, our food is designed to get that dopamine hit, hit to uh, be very attractive yeah. uh, to us. I have to ask you a question based on what's behind yeah. you. Can I do that? Oh yeah, are you seeing all of my poop emojis? I love them, but take a look at this. Do you know what this is? Can you see oh, that? Oh, is that guy pooping? He's pooping. Yes. And he, this is, it's called a, I'm probably saying it wrong, but it's a kakaner. Uh, and in, and it's from, I want to say, the Where Philippines. Uh, no, not the, well, I think it's not Mauritius. It's my brother was just traveling there. He's a biophysicist and biochemist who does cancer research. He lives in Copenhagen and he was, gosh, where is this from? You know, it, anyway, and so it, tell this me. This is marvelous. I just had a post today from someone uh, who was talking, who had seen uh, a, car a character very much like that showed me the front and the back side and he was traveling in the Philippines said oh my god I saw this took a photo I, I knew I wanted to share it with you because he's fertilizing repairing the soil that's exactly what it stands for and it's about the importance of you know eating clean and the elimination cycle that goes back into the earth we refertilize the soil with it and it's a complete cycle it's all about health and wellness and they're celebrated you can get one that looks like Trump you can get one that looks like every politician. <laughs> They're quite spectacular. Oh my God. So, so where? I, I need to get that. I'm going to send you the information for my brother and, um, and I'm going to actually send you one. I'm going to find one for you and send it to oh, you. Oh, that'll be perfect. We'll have to, we'll have to give that a, at our next seminar. Exactly. Our attendees would love it. So explain to me why you have the poop emoji behind you. Is it just for laughter as medicine or is it for something probably well, a little bit more know, scientific? Uh, so... I think our microbiome is probably uh, the probable, probable main mechanism of why the Walls diet is so healing because yeah. it changes the microbiome. We rely on our microbial metabolites to run the chemistry of life that um, our, our scientists colleagues would have predicted it would have 100,000 genes, but we only have about 25,000 genes. Those other 75,000 genes are, are there in the microbiome to conduct all those processes that we can't do anymore. 
that happens in our gut gets into our bloodstream. Our liver filters out the stuff that's not helpful. The stuff that helps us stays in our bloodstream, goes to where it needs to go. And if, we, if we're eating a proper diet with soft, easily passed bowel movements, we're more likely to be able to do all those processes and have good health. So I, I celebrate uh, poop a great deal. You know, and, and I'm a farm kid. So uh, the farm kids know that poop is incredibly valuable. Those old farmers, uh, we gathered all that poop up and put it out on the soil. And the, the fields that got the poop had high production. Exactly. Fields that did not get the poop had poor production. Yeah. Uh, and so my grandparents and my father and my great-grandparents would all be so pleased to know that the, the young daughter who thought she was a smarty pants went off to medical school, eventually embraced their wisdom about the importance of fertilizing the stool and exactly. just how valuable our stool is. Yeah, and I couldn't agree with you more on all of that. I mean, I love talking about poop. We talk about poop around the dinner table. Like it's, you know, it's uh, just something that is just so important. I mean, I have three kids. Uh, you have two children who are, are yes. they, they're older now, probably. Now 28 and 25. Oh yeah, they're a lot older. Oh my gosh. They were still at living at home children with you when I first learned about you. Um, yes. Can we talk about that then a little bit? So how, when you were going through... And I read up a lot of your story too um, in Susanna Meadows' book, The Other Side of Impossible. Oh, yeah. yeah, we interviewed her a few times on her show and she's such an amazing woman. Um, and so I learned more about what that looked like in your family when you were discovering all of this and healing. Um, but how how did you work this out with your kids with when it came to cooking and eating? And Well, you know, when they were um, before 2008 and I recovered, uh, they had uh, real chores, and they had to help us manage life, and they were frustrated that they had to do the laundry, and their friends didn't know anything about the laundry, and I'm like, well, they were 10, and they would get really mad, and I'd say, oh, yeah, I, I could empathize with their resenting chores. I'd say, yep, that's so not fair that I make you do that, and it's so not fair that I can't do it, and it's so not fair that I have MS, but I have to go to work and do the best I can anyway. And this is your chores because I can't do it. This the family relies on you. And and uh, both my son and my daughter stamped their feet, and at different times, mind you, and shouted back, "Mom, I think you're glad you have MS. You can lecture me about chores." <laughs> I go, "Well, you know, a mom has to work with what she has to work with." Yeah. And so, um, so it was a, a big part of their develop development that they had real chores that they understood was a vital part of their life and one of their chores was they had to make one meal a week mm. and uh, so we had nannies and the nannies would help them but they would pick out the menu and they did that and then as I began to uh, recover uh, then the only, the only foods that could be served was um, basically paleo style meals uh, and then I decided that I thought their health would improve if I convinced them that they should follow this diet not only in my house but all the time uh, and so um, actually I, I did some testing on, on my uh, family and uh, did verify that there was gluten sensitivity issues mm -hmm. uh, and so they uh, made big changes to their diets and experienced some big changes uh, in terms of uh, migraine issues. 
uh, uh, so that was pretty interesting. Uh, and I'm like, thank you, God, that, you know, there's some acute yeah. symptoms that uh, made it worthwhile for my, you know, my daughter's uh, really uh, eats very well. Uh, so uh, that it certainly has been a, a, a different journey for them, but they're uh, on board. Uh, at, and when we made the decision that as a household, you know, they could eat what they wanted away from the house, but if, if the wrong food came into the house, it was just getting thrown away. Mm -hmm. uh, and if they wanted to order the wrong food at a meal that they expected me to pay for, they got a separate check and they were paying for it. So that was a little like, what? High five, mom. Yeah. <laughs> Good for you. So then that was the end of that. Like, okay, I guess um, I don't want that Mac so much that I'm going to order it. I can just order the hamburger without the bun. Like, okay, that works. Yeah. Um, I, and so, and I talk about that with my, with my patients that control only what you can control, which is what you're going to pay for. Yep. and what comes into the house and let your you can explain to your kids why they should do whatever they're going to do but recognize when they're away from you they're going to do whatever they're going to do yeah yeah our daughter works at the at our restaurant she's worked there for three years and you know dynamite employee and this year especially she she's turning 15 this month and she really was like you know I really noticed that because she makes her own money right so she can go out there and spend it on stuff and I can't control that uh, it's you know, and you can't even attempt to try and control that and so she started to break out with you know zits all around her nose so she had like you know some acne a little bit and she put the two and two together because she's like oh yeah you know what mom the way we've been eating at home is very different than the way I've been eating out with my friends and so now she's like she eats at our restaurant she eats the food there when she goes out with her friends she's making wise choices it didn't happen overnight she had to experiment for herself and sure. she had to see that that effect um and you know now I see it happening and I'm sure my other two are going to go through the same thing and as a parent I think you're going to just have to be okay that they're doing that because it's experimenting on yourself is you know it, it's, it's part of life yeah it, and you want you want your kids to experiment while they're living at home. So they, cause you don't want them having all those experiments when they first go off to college and they can't come talk to you easily. Exactly. So much better for them to recognize that they're, they're, they're going to make those choices. Yeah. Um, now, I, I, of course we do have those big conversations about choices that can lead to unexpected life so that they're very careful about those choices and, Choices that could lead to unexpected loss of life. Yeah. Um, but you know, choices about you know making, hope, well, hopefully, some temporary uh, diet choices that will hopefully be temporary. They have to figure that out. They do. They do. Um, how was it for you and your wife when you were going through all of this and making these dietary changes? Because I know for myself, my clients, often there's one that comes in and she, they're like my partner doesn't want to do it or my partner says I'm not allowed to do it. Or, you know, we do have a lot in this day and age where yeah. a lot of men do dictate what their partners still do today with how they cook and how they eat. Um, and a lot of the women succumb, but how was it in your relationship? Um, Jack was, well, it's always very easy because I uh, did the cooking. Okay. So that, that part was easy. As I became more and more disabled, uh, we started hiring someone to cook. Um, and, um, 
this is what they were cooking for us. Uh, and then as I began to recover, I did all the cooking. So, uh, and you know, Jack could eat whatever she wanted elsewhere, but you know, it, and I mean, my family was just like so amazed. Think about what it's like to watch someone you love go from being unable to sit up to biking a 20 mile bike ride in a 12 month time period. It's amazing. That, that's an amazing journey to watch and to be part of. Yeah, no, that is really incredible. So um, because we are, you know, a plant-based whole food company, um, my staff wanted me to ask you about the difference between the Swank protocol and the Walls protocol, your protocol. Sure. And what, and so, so just want to know about it all. So, so here's the common things. Vegetables. Uh, here, um, uh, uh, and uh, cod liver oil. We both uh, agree in vitamin D. Yeah. So that's where we agree. Um, we'd both agree that, well, I agree that olive oil is really great for you. Um, they have a, a, a little bit of olive oil. Uh, then they will want uh, a lot of whole grain uh, and leg um, legumes are okay. Um, if I had the whole grains, my face pain would be incapacitating. Mm -hmm. uh, legumes in a small amount, I could tolerate. Uh, they're very, very low fat. Um, and uh, uh, I prefer a diet that's about 40 to 50% fat okay. because I think fat is critical to have healthy mitochondria for the fat wrappers around the mitochondria and yeah. those squiggly lines, the fat wrappers inside the mitochondria and all the myelin, you need a lot of fat. You need omega-3 fat, omega-6 fat. Yeah, you need cholesterol. Uh, and uh, all of that is in our brain, in those cell membranes uh, and in the myelin. There's some interesting studies that link uh, a high cholesterol um, in that 250 to 300 range as uh, being associated with a uh, better my remyelination rates. So, but Swank's very, very low fat. The, the commonality though, vegetables, mm -hmm. you know, Unlimited vegetables are good. Uh, the original Swank diet uh, let people have as much sugar as they wanted because he was trying to make the diet more palatable. Mm, on the Swank diet. And how do you feel? Correct. And on yours, it's... Well, no, no, no. no. Uh, one teaspoon a day. Yeah, exactly. Which is very similar to Gerson as well. As long yeah. as it's, you know, coming from... One uh, teaspoon a day or less. Exactly. Yeah. And everything else can come from your fruits and vegetables. And, yeah. you know, you're going to get sugar. Um, now... Um, with the, uh, so let's go back because I want people to understand what is happening with MS because I know a lot of people um, don't associate it to being an autoimmune disorder. And I ask my clients, like, do you know that this is a classified autoimmune disorder? And a lot of people are like, really? I didn't realize it was. So their doctors aren't explaining it to them in that way. Uh, if you can explain that a little bit better for well, to understand, that would be great. So the MS has two components. One is these acute uh, episodes of inflammation, which are um, the body attacking itself. And the other uh, factor is the shrinkage of the brain and spinal cord over time. Uh, most of the drugs uh, can turn off the parts of the inflammation process to stop those inflammation attacks. Uh, none of the drugs really... Uh, attack the degeneration process, which is centered around mitochondrial function. 
my approach with diet and lifestyle focuses on mitochondria, nutrition, and so that really focuses on stopping the neurodegeneration as well as stopping the inflammation by getting rid of the uh, particularly inflammatory foods. Right. Okay, so that's that's fantastic. And then now if we can jump into the mitochondrial function, because I know when Dr. Max Gerson started researching, I mean, he didn't have the technology to see that we even had mitochondria, but he could observe that when his patients switched to a diet very similar to yours, that um, he saw that there was this process happening inside the cells. So within yeah. the cells and, and around the, and he knew that there was an energy production loss um, as the disease was, you know, being ignited and then continuing, but that he would see it. So reversing that ATP loss was a huge part of the therapy as well. So if you can talk about that and explain to people as well, the, what are mitochondria do? And if you can explain that, how our body creates um, mitochondria as well. Sure. Well, if you go back about a billion and a half years, uh, our, the bacteria uh, in the earth, we had uh, development of cyanobacters, uh, and they could do photosynthesis. Uh, and over time, this increased amount of oxygen uh, in the atmosphere, which then led to a crisis because the oxygen actually led to a lot of oxidation, sort of biologic rust. And about 90 to 95% of all life forms died. Uh, and the ones that remained were pretty sickly. Uh, but over time, because of random mutations, we got all the steps to make the Krebs cycle. Uh, and one particular bacteria was very good with the Krebs cycle uh, in making energy or ATP more efficiently. This ancient bacteria got engulfed by a bigger bacteria and they developed a symbiotic cooperative relationship, which over enough time led to multicellular organisms, animals, which led to um, the ability to specialize into organs. Uh, and of course, would eventually lead into mammals and primates and us. But these ancient bacteria are uh, what uh, runs the Krebs cycle and runs the generation of energy that's much more efficient. And the parts of your body that, that use the energy the most, so that would be the brain, the retina, and the heart, yeah. have the most mitochondria per cell. Uh, and, this, and the mitochondria uh, fuse and divide, uh, and um, in terms of the efficiency of how well that mitochondria is working, will determine how efficiently that cell can do its job. And how well that mitochondria is going to work depends on uh, really two things. One is, uh, do you have anti-nutrients in the cell that interfere with the uh, chemical processes? So things like lead, mercury, arsenic, uh, solvents, uh, uh, herbicides, uh, pesticides, and antibiotics. Mm -hmm. Um, all interfere with the efficiency of your mitochondria. Um, and then, so that, those are the anti-nutrients. Uh, then uh, virus, viruses can sometimes hijack your mitochondria and divert their energy to their nefarious means. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the third thing would be, uh, do your uh, mitochondria have the cofactors and the nutrients they need 
to facilitate each step in the Krebs cycle. Because if they're missing some of the nutrients, the next step can't work very well and the chemical processes jam up. And again, the mitochondria don't make uh, the ATP or the energy very well. Because what, what allows us to be alive uh, is the energy that our mitochondria can, can generate for us that will then be used to facilitate all the other chemistry we need in order to, to walk, think, sing, digest, make our proteins, uh, make hormones, um, and to do all the complex actions that have to happen uh, as a biological organism. That is one of the best explanations that um, I've ever heard. Thank you for that. I know it's going to be really helpful because I talk about the mitochondria a lot in my presentations. And, um, you know, and it's, you could talk about the mitochondria as a two hour presentation. It's the most fascinating um, I oh, think, yeah. part you know, of our it, body. You know, I think one of the reasons I, I'm, I'm so help, so good with this is my uh, college uh, mentor, or rather my uh, medical student mentor, uh, Bill Bean, said at the end of every encounter, ask your patients what they learned mm -hmm. and what are they going to do? Uh, and so I'd always do that talking to my vets and I learned very quickly that my explanations were effective or they were not. Yeah. I, and so that helped me learn how to I have metaphors that are understandable by people who have a lot of scientific understanding or very little scientific understanding. Yeah, and that brings me to, I think, a really important question, because I think, you know, you are a medical doctor, you're working with patients, yeah, you were doing your rounds, I think, throughout, you know, the entire time while you were yeah. ill. In the wheelchair, and, yeah. In the wheelchair, and then you moved into being a clinical researcher, um, you know, you are a scientist, you're a healing hero, you're all of these things, you are the perfect person to answer this question, in, in my opinion. What do we need to do? to change the course of um, how we, as a society, operates in relationship to the medical practitioners well, that are out there in the medical schools? I'll tell you what I'm doing. Okay. So okay. I, the, uh, I'm teaching the public, mm -hmm. so the public can get access to information right now. I'm teaching clinicians who want to hear right now. And then I'm, teach, I'm, I'm doing the clinical research uh, showing that, you know, diet and lifestyle are helpful for uh, symptom control. Uh, and then uh, I'm committed to also doing the head-to-head -head studies of diet, lifestyle, without disease-modifying drugs in newly diagnosed, and we'll start with MS because that, those are the people that I study, mm -hmm. compared to a cohort of newly diagnosed MS patients getting standard of care at the MS clinic here at the university. Uh, we've raised funds to pay my staff to do that research. We, the protocol uh, is with the IRB, so they're under the review process. Uh, it'll take a couple months to get through. So presumably this fall will be in a position that we can start recruiting. Uh, and it's gonna take doing head-to-head -head studies comparing mm -hmm. therapeutic lifestyle, no drugs, to standard of care to be able to say, this is a real option mm -hmm. that we can offer our patients. And in fact, that every autoimmune patient should be told, do diet and lifestyle first, 
see if we can cool off your disease with that alone. And maybe you won't need to take these very profoundly expensive drugs. So that's my goal. I love what you are doing, but I see you as one individual, you know, a, a fish, a tiny little fish in the sea of all the medical practitioners who are out there who are graduating oh, from med school. So and a lot of doctors I meet, like they've actually put it, they've come to our sessions, they've come to our retreats and they're like, I'm not a scientist. I don't know how to do research. And, you know, and I get that, you know, so am I false in thinking that we can change the medical system so that we could produce well, more people who think like you or do they this, have to go through their own experience? This is the sequence, how it's going to have to go, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Teach the public, create public demand. Yeah. We teach clinicians who are ready and want to learn. And then we have to do the science to show that this is a real option. Uh, and then when we, when we have the science that shows it's a real option, then those large organizations that are paying the bills mm -hmm. that will see like, wait a minute, you mean we could use diet and lifestyle as opposed to drugs that cost $100,000 a year? So it, 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 yeah, I'm playing for the long game. Yeah, you are. Uh, and I mean, so that's the long game. Um, and you know, people thought it was a little crazy doing it this way, but now more people are getting on board that we have to do it all simultaneously. Yeah. We teach the public, we teach clinicians, we do the science. We try to get more people teaching children how to cook yeah. in their after school, before school programs in their religious ed, at the Y at camp, uh, in school, we need our children to be fired up about cooking using ingredients, not processed foods. Exactly. Uh, and um, the internet can do wonderful things. It can do you know, uh, terrible things with spreading hateful messages, mm -hmm. but it can also be a useful tool for uh, spreading patient uh, and family engagement uh, in that diet and lifestyle are profoundly important. You know, it, it's, it's, it's deeply troubling uh, when you look at the health stats for our children. Um, I was talking with pediatricians uh, at our um, integrative medicine conference that they're projecting one in two children will have an autoimmune disease. Um, and parents, we, we may not always do the most for ourselves, but we'll do a lot more for our kids. Sure. And when parents begin to realize, like, my, my child uh, has a neurodevelopmental problem. My child has a health behavior problem. My child has an autoimmune problem. And I could go down this drug pathway, or I could go down this vegetables and fruit and lifestyle pathway. So I choose to be optimistic. I choose to teach the public. I choose to teach clinicians. I choose to have public seminars where I, I teach the public. I choose to have uh, seminars where I'm teaching clinicians uh, how I think and approach these things. And I choose to go out and work on raising money to, because I have to do this from a philanthropist. Mm -hmm. So if you, any of your um, listeners want to support us, that's terrywalls.com forward slash research. Um, we depend on you to be able to do these 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 wonderfully innovative studies that I'm doing, comparing 
therapeutic lifestyle to these drugs costing a hundred thousand dollars a year. Yeah, no, it is incredible work that you are doing. And I love, you know, the fact that you chose not to simply heal, but that you decided to take that experience and then share it with the public. Because I know a lot of people who have healed from their chronic issues and and they just want to move on with their life. And I think we do have an obligation to share that, even if it's a story, even if it's just, you know, in your community, just saying, hey, you know, this is what I did. Because a lot of yes. times we can only advance research sometimes when we have that N of one study. You were that N of- Oh, yeah. You know, right? writing, writing the case reports, exactly. writing the case series, incredibly powerful. Yeah. Um, so that's-, that's uh, Again, on the list of things that I, I'm going to do is to collect uh, the case series yeah. so that we could um, write up uh, these case reports. Yeah. And I know also for um, medical practitioners, if you're out there listening to this and you see your patients and, you know, a lot of you have seen my clients go through you and they've reversed their diseases, but not very few of you have called me to say, hey, so tell me what you did, or they don't follow up with their patient. And I think that's something that's an easy thing that a medical practitioner can do is say, you know, just tell me about what you did. I'm really just curious. You could take some notes about it. You can do something, you know, it's, you know, sure, you're not going to be able to bill out for that time. But I think it's important that we don't discount these, you know, for you, it's going to be an outlier, you know, for a lot of these practitioners that are like, oh, well, it's just a coincidence, or they never had the disease. But that's something is to just get curious about what people did when they're able to reverse their symptoms um, and I know for us my daughter was part of a um, study and she was an outlier because she healed so fast that they were like well we can't have her in the study anymore and they pulled her out and um, and I said well don't you want to know what we did like how we live our life and they were like well no because it's not part of the study and I said this is ridiculous it was a university like UBC was doing the research and I'm like we're an outlier but don't discount us you know our story is really important um, and the when we start sharing these stories, you know, I think that's when we're going to see even more traction as well. It is a journey. It is a journey. So Dr. Terry Walls, I have a million more questions that I want to ask you, but we're going to save that for a follow-up podcast if you would be uh, kind to Yes, yes. With us. Well, you know, uh, the Walls protocol uh, is being revised. So have me come back um, because that new book will be out. Uh, March 3rd. And so we can talk about that and let your audience know what's going to be new and exciting in the new book. Okay, great. What's the new book called? Uh, the Revised and Expanded Walls Protocol. Okay, great. So it has the name Walls Protocol in there. So we're going to put that in the show notes. And if somebody wants to be a participant in one of your trials, how can they do that? So if they'll reach out to msdietstudy at healthcare.uiowa.edu. Okay. Um, then uh, you could contact our team. Uh, we don't have a st any study that we're enrolling at presently, okay. uh, but you can uh, be in our registry for future studies. So okay. that's okay. very useful. And in the meantime, they can pick up your existing copy of the Wells Protocol. Oh, by all means, uh, implement uh, the Wells Protocol. You know, think about signing up and coming to the seminar. If okay. you have an autoimmune condition uh, or a any brain-related problem, we have hundreds and hundreds of people come. Uh, if you're a practitioner, think about uh, coming to the seminar and think about the certification course because it will transform how you motivate your patients uh, and how you think about uh, group visits. So again, you can find all that information at terrywalls.com. 
Amazing. And do you have to be a medical practitioner or can you be a healthcare practitioner of any? You can be uh, any kind of healthcare license will work. Um, We also have people who have certificates, uh, nutrition certificates that will work as fine. Okay. Uh, Health coach certificate would also work. Okay. Amazing. Um, And then another question about that is, so you've obviously seen many, many, many patients who have MS, but clearly they must have had other chronic health issues that also healed. Sure. So again, in my BA clinic, we took uh, people from primary care and from the pain clinic who we just said, look, give us your most challenging patients. They just need to know they're not getting drugs. So we saw, saw uh, people with diabetes, high blood pressure, uh, stabilize their condition, reverse it so they needed less and less uh, medication, and then finally, often no meds. People with a wide variety of autoimmune problems like rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, um, psoriasis, and of course, uh, MS. Again, stabilize their disease, uh, and improve the quality of life, uh, regress symptoms, and uh, again, able to wean uh, their medication. Uh, and then people with pain from a wide variety of uh, problems related to uh, a traumatic injury uh, during the war, uh, perhaps an amputation or a, a, a small fiber neuropathy. Uh, again, people who had had severe intractable pain, whose pain is steadily diminishing, uh, and uh, so again, doing very well. You know, and, and we had uh, young guys uh, from uh, Iraq, the Afghanistan theaters, who came back, uh, had had um, uh, severe obesity after the exposure of the war, uh, that they're able to lose weight and restore um, sexual function again. Mm-hmm. So these guys were, were like, oh my God, doc, it's working. So You're a hero. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my love life, my love life. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. So that was, a, that was a big hit. Yeah, that's amazing. Thanks for sharing that because I think a lot of people, you know, as they're hearing this, they're going to be like, well, she had MS and I had diabetes. So therefore, you know, I need to do a diabetes protocol. At the end of the day, it's a whole health protocol. It's yeah. about restore, restoring your mitochondrial function. It's about eutrophying the Krebs cycle. It's about, I mean, your whole body is connected. It's one piece. And so it's really hard to heal one disease, not heal the others when you are um, doing, uh, returning to returning to lifestyle medicine and food as medicine. So yeah, thanks for sharing that. So just so that people, if you're listening, please get Dr. Terry um, Wall's book, read her book, listen to the TED Talk. If you love reading clinical research um, papers, then call me. I will get you access to that um, as well and share that with you. Yeah. And and we have links uh, to all my scientific papers on my website. So if you go to uh, terrywalls.com forward slash papers, uh, you'll get uh, access to the papers that, that we've published. Okay, incredible. And just the last question, just before we um, let you go back to doing all the important work that you do in the world is, how important is the e-STEM in all of this? So the diet and lifestyle is really good at stopping the damage. If you want to rebuild or rehabilitate, you're going to have to exercise. Uh, And uh, e-STEM augments the exercise. So it's particularly good for people who've had um, a lot of asymmetry. So in my case, my left leg uh, was far smaller than my right leg. 
uh, and so adding the e-stem allowed me to get things uh, back to uh, symmetric strength. And then I continue to use e-stem all of the time. And I I'll talk a lot more about this in, in my revised book mm -hmm. because I have a lot of scar in my spinal cord. So the output from my brain to my legs will never be the same um, because of that, uh, those scars. So I will always exercise and augment uh, on the left side of my legs uh, to keep that symmetry intact. Okay. So it's helpful for rehab. So there's, there's two questions. We have to stop the damage and heal. Okay, so we'll do that with diet and lifestyle. If you want your muscles to be stronger, you have to exercise. Okay, and are we talking about crazy extensive vigorous exercise? Or are we talking about... We, we, we talk about starting where you're at okay. and working from there. Amazing. So okay. it, it, it depends on the level of disability. Now, when I started, I was so weak that a 10 minutes of isometric exercises was all that I was able to do. Mm, and look at you now. You are I amazing. Keep for hours, yeah. Yeah, you're amazing. Dr. Terry Wells, thank you so much for taking the time to be in our show and sharing this invaluable information. You are a light in this world, so keep shining bright as I know you will be. And thank you so much for putting... Um, it's not easy to go after all those grants. It's not easy to, you know, keep charging ahead all of these years. Um, and you're really doing it in service of humanity and the planet. And so I thank you for that, and our entire team at the Green Mustache and Richard Health. Thank you for that. Deeply. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So how did you enjoy that show? Isn't Dr. Terry Walls phenomenal? I can't stress enough what a renegade this woman is. So go out there and learn as much as you can about her, share this information with others, and definitely check out our show notes because we have a lot of great information on in the show notes. For example, you can download a one-page handout of what the Dr. Terry Wells protocol looks like. You can access her research papers. You can find out what's happening in her clinical trials. You can also reach out and get in touch with her for speaking opportunities. I know she only speaks to pretty big crowds now um, because she is in such high demand for this incredible work that's happening. And of course, again, share this work with everyone that you know because that's the first step in being able to end this chronic disease epidemic that we are faced with. Now last announcement of the show before we see you in next week's podcast is we are hosting once again our Hollyhock retreat at Hollyhock on Cortez Island in beautiful British Columbia. So tell your friends, get your family members, sign up for this because there's a limited number of seats. You, we are gonna spend five days together where I teach you the Eat Realty Health Protocol. We cook together, we do writing exercises together so we can uncover all of your limiting beliefs around diet and food and disease and all of that. We spend time walking the beach, doing yoga. We go to bed early so that you can enter into a regenerative sleep state. We do the liver detox, like we do it all at this retreat. So you definitely wanna sign up for that because we have canceled all the retreats for our retreat center this year because we're so busy launching our Richard Work Program and I'm out there speaking at different events. So we aren't running any retreats out of our retreat center 
this year, but we definitely stuck to hosting our Hollyhock retreat at the famous Hollyhock Institute on Cortez Island. So sign up today. See you next week for another podcast on the Eat Real to Heal show. I am your host, Nicolette Richet. Bye for now.